So, welcome to this week's Rashi Shia from the Mizrahi Bet Midrash of Melbourne, Australia. There will be no Shia next week because it will be Shavuot. But in Hashem, we will resume in two weeks' time. We will start with a Rashi of the week. What is this week's parasha? The Midbar, unless you're in Israel, in which case it's your way ahead already. But it says in Perigimel Pasuk Aleph of the Midbar, where it starts to elucidate the list of the families of the Levim. It says, These are the generations or the descendants, as it's usually understood, of Aaron and Moshe on the day that Hashem spoke to Moshe in Har Sinai. And then it goes on to say, These are the children of Aaron and this is his four children. And then it goes on to the Levium in general. What's missing? Moshe's children. <coughs> so the Rashi says, Ela told that Aaron or Moshe, the Enumazkir Ela b'nei Aaron, and it only mentions the children of Aaron. The Nikra'u told that Moshe, and they are called the children or the offspring of Moshe, Lefi Shalamdan Torah, because he taught Torah to them. Malameid Shakol Hamalameid et Ben Chavero Torah. This teaches that anyone who teaches Torah to the child of their fellow, the Pasuk considers the teacher as if he was the father or the mother of the child whom they are teaching. <coughs> so this is one of my favorite Rashi's, not quite there with number one or number two, but it's pretty good because it tells us what it means to be a Talmud, but it also tells us what it means to be a teacher. So by the way, um, Rashi doesn't address the fact that Moshe had children, Gershom and Eliezer, and they're not listed. It's actually rather a sad story because Gershom and Eliezer didn't reach any sort of fame or positive notoriety, and possibly um, uh, Moshe's great-grandson was a professional idolater, which is, which is a bit sad. Um, uh, so he didn't have great yichus descending from him, which is often the case with our great leaders, witness Shmuel and Eli and and David HaMelech to some extent, and uh, many, many others. Um, anyway, so the, Rashi doesn't really address the fact that Moshe's children are not mentioned. But he does address the fact that Toldot Moshe are included. So where is Toldot Moshe? Answer, the children of Aaron. Because Moshe taught Torah to the children of Aaron, so they become his, teacher, his students, and therefore they become like his children. So I think this idea works both ways that a child, should, a Talmud, should relate to their Rebbe like they relate to their own parent, but it's also the case that the teacher should relate to the children that whom he, is, he or she is teaching like their own children. Um, and, I, and I have to say, uh, there are a few, not very many, but there are a few students that I've taught over the years that I have an ongoing connection with, and I try to remember what this Rashi says in the Chazal that he's quoting, and to relate to these Talmidim, not exactly like my own children, that of course is impossible, but to show an ongoing concern and care for them. Um, we can, we can uh, go a little bit deeper, because the Mephoshim on this Rashi all ask the question, hang on a minute, whom else did he teach Torah to? Whom else did Moshe teach Torah to? The whole of B'nai Israel, Everyone. So why don't we say everyone is Moshe's children? So there's various answers. But one answer I want to share comes from the Maharal, who says that he went over and above what he had to do in, the, in case of everyone else um, regarding uh, what he did for these two. The children of Aaron was much more than what he did for B'nai Israel. B'nai Israel, he was commanded to teach Torah to by Hashem. Every time Hashem says, Hashem is telling him as a mitzvah to go and teach the rest of B'nai Israel. But when it came to teaching his nephews, Moshe did more than he was commanded. So it's if things like that's a voluntary aspect, that going above and beyond, that is what, according to the Maharal, makes Rashi say here that he became like the father of his Talmidim. Okay, that's a Rashi from this week's parasha. Let us go back to Bereshit. And we had almost finished Perak Gimel. <coughs> we are on Perak Gimel, Pasuk Kaf Dalot. And we read there, Vayagarish et ha'adam, he, Hashem drove away the man. Vayashken, or it could be, by the way, it could be the, the human species. We talked a little bit about that last week. I think that is a legitimate interpretation. And Hashem made dwell east of Gan Eden the Kruvim. 
some sort of angels. That's where we got up to last week. Ve'et lahat hacherev. Hamit hapechet. And lahat. Well, let's see what Rashi means by... Well, Rashi includes the explanation of lahat in his words on hacherev hamit pachechet. So hamit hapechet means the revolving sword. So the Pasuk actually says, Ve'et lahat hacherev hamit hapechet. The lahat, now lahat means blade. So what we actually have is blade of the sword of revolving. And Rashi says on the words, hacherev hamit hapechet, vela lahat. And it had a blade. So Rashi adds the word vela to show that the blade is part of the sword. The problem is, in the original, the lahat is the object itself of um, Vayashken. Hashem may dwell the blade of the sword that was revolving. Rashi's not happy with that for obvious reasons because you don't put a blade somewhere as if it's just attached to a sword. The blade and the sword, are, the sword is the integral thing and the blade is subsidiary to the sword. So Rashi says, on hacherev hamitapechet, vela lahat. And it had a blade. La ayem alav milechanes od lagan. And then Rashi says, why do we need a sword or the blade? To frighten him to, so he cannot enter anymore into the garden. And then Rashi thinks we might have a problem with the meaning of the word lahat. Now, we don't because we've looked it up in the English translation and it says blade. But we have to put ourselves in the framework of not necessarily having a handy translation. And if it's a word that Rashi thinks is not common, Rashi will help us with the explanation. So he says, Targum lahat shanan. The Targum of the word lahat is shanan. And if you look in the Targum Onkelos, you can see he's right, as you would expect. Rashi says, um, yeah, the Targum says, uh, So instead of Lahat, uh, Unculus has got Shanan. <coughs> and where else do we find Shanan? Well, we find Shanan in the Gemara, in Sanhedrin. As Rashi says, Kamo Shalaf Shanana, which means he drew his sword. It's talking about Pinchas fighting against um, Zimri. Uh, and it says that Pinchas shalaf shanana, so that means draw his sword. Now there, shanana means sword; it doesn't actually mean blade. Veloshan laz lema lema. In the language of this people, which is Rashi's reference, way he refers to French, um, he translates lahat as lama, which means thin strip. Um, lamina comes from that French word. I got that from the art scroll. Um, but it's something that refers back to a blade. And then he says, Umidrashe Agada Yesh, there are Midrashim on this, but I've only come to give you the Pshat, which is what Rashi said in the end of the previous passage, at the end of Kafbet, his comment on Kafbet as well. And I have to admit, I don't know, and I couldn't find any source why he makes that point on this Pasuk and the previous Pasuk. And he doesn't make that point on every Pasuk because it's really relevant to say on every Pasuk there are lots and lots of Midrashim. But Rashi in these two places and a few others in Chumash makes that point. He gives you the Pshat, that Shanan, sorry, Lahat means Shanan, means blade. <coughs> the blade is subsidiary to the cherev, to the sword. That's what, the way Rashi retells you the pasuk. And then he says there are midrashim, but this is the pshat. Okay, we have finished Perak Gimel, and we're on to Perak Dalad. Now I have to just say, by way of introduction to Pasuk Aleph, for those who might be a little bit surprised that we've had lots of references to sexual relations, uh, the Nachash wanted Chavar, and Chavar and Adam, and Rashi seems to bring it quite a lot. And if anyone feels that surprising or even makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable, I'm sorry, we've only got one more to go, at least not for a long while, but we have it here in Perak Dalad Pasuk Aleph. And Perak Dalad Pasuk Aleph says, Adam yada et Chava ishto. So this is usually translated as Adam knew Chava, his wife. And then you understand the word know in the biblical sense means to have relations. And you think sometimes people think it's a little bit funny, know in the biblical sense. That's not right. That's not what's going on here. The word yada means in some context to have sexual relations. That's what yada means. It doesn't mean the word yada means no. 
K-N-O-W. And no, in this case, is like an idiom or like a, um, a synonym for sexual relations. The word yada has that meaning in some context. So to translate it as no is actually wrong, even though pretty much all the translations do that. It means he had sexual relations. And by the way, that teaches us something profound about the Jewish idea of intimacy and the Jewish idea of knowledge. Because the two are, are cognate, the two are similar ideas and expressed by the same word. To know something is to be intimate with it. And to be intimate with somebody is to know them. The two go together and it's quite a profound idea about the Jewish idea of knowledge. And by the way, knowledge is very important. We want to learn, we are the people of the book and we should have a knowledge of Torah but knowledge should be so close and so intimate, it's, all, it's parallel to the marital relationship. Anyway, So Adam had relations with Chava, his wife, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have made or I have acquired a man with Hashem. So there's a lot to say on various things in that verse, but we'll start with what Rashi says on the first two words. Now, I'm very excited by this, Rashi, because it's grammar, and grammar is good, and by understanding the grammatical implication, we actually get a very important philosophical point, and in order to understand the Jewish view of what we're talking about, which is different from the Christian view, we have to get the grammatical understanding of the Adam Yada correct. You'll see what I mean. So Rashi says on the word v'ha'adam yada, kavar kodem ha'inyan shalmala. This had happened already before the previous subject, the one immediately above. What's the one immediately above? Kodem shechatav nitrad migan edem. Before he sinned and was exiled, was pushed out of Gan Eden. V'chein ha'harayon v'haleida. And so the pregnancy and the birth, that had all happened before the expulsion. So before Rashi proves his point from a grammatical point of view, let's just understand um, the narrative. That means, and it's based on a Gemara and Sanhedrin, we saw this some time ago, there's Gemara and Sanhedrin that says uh, what happened on each hour of the first day of creation, or the first day of the creation of humankind, i.e. the sixth day of creation. So Adam was created at a certain hour, I forget which one, and in the afternoon they sinned and Hashem was walking in the evening and they hid from Hashem. And what happened during the day? At one point, Chava gave birth and then Chava gave birth again and Cain and Hevel were already born on that day. It was a very, very quick pregnancy. Didn't last nine months, but that makes sense. Why? Why does that make sense? Because the punishment, very good, to Chava was that she would have the pain of pregnancy um, which is understood, at least according to this idea, as part of the duration of pregnancy, would also be part of the changed nature that followed from the sin. So, chronology, this is out of order, this had already happened. Now, how do we know that? Says Rashi, She'im katav, because if it had written, Vayada Adam, that way round, it would be translated exactly the same, Adam had relations, but if it written with the verb before the subject, nishma <coughs> it would mean that after he was exiled, hayulobanim, he had children. Okay, syntax. Syntax, a great word. What does syntax mean? Wow. <laughs> Something to do with grammar. Okay, syntax means word order. Oh, very good. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, one of you went to Mount Scopus Memorial College, so you've let me down. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, syntax means word order. Now, in English, and for that matter, in modern Hebrew, the subject goes before the verb. The boy wrote the letter. You don't say wrote the boy the letter. You could, if you were being very poetical, say wrote the boy the letter, but it's normally the boy wrote the letter. And it is in modern Hebrew. However, in classical Hebrew, it is not necessarily so. And usually it is subject, sorry, it is verb followed by subject. So, vayome Hashem. If you translate that word for word, it's he said Hashem, but we say Hashem said. 
So the vast majority, I haven't done a survey, but the vast majority of cases, it is the verb followed by the subject. Just by the way, a little bit of grammatical trivia here. Um, the object also comes after the verb, always, in English and in classical Hebrew. So the problem is sometimes you don't know which is the subject and which is the object. The subject is the doer and the object is what's done too. So in English, the boy wrote the letter. In Hebrew, wrote the boy the letter. But it could even be wrote the letter the boy. So how do you know which is the object? The answer is that is why you need the little two-letter word in classical Hebrew, which you're always told don't translate into English, which is et. Because et, if it's followed by the definite article, hey, indicates the object. Et indicates the object. I'm told that Ben-Gurion thought we should abolish the et, and that makes sense, because in modern Hebrew, you don't need the et to indicate the object, because the word order does it for you. But in classical Hebrew, the word order is not conclusive, so you need the et. We're going to see the use of et in another respect very soon. But anyway, back to this. Now, next thing is about tense. So there is a past tense. So the boy wrote the letter. The letter was written in the past, before I'm telling the story. But there is something also in English, but not explicitly in Hebrew, which is called pluperfect. What does pluperfect mean? How do you recognize it in English? Not quite. Had. If you say the boy had written the letter, that is called pluperfect. And it means not only did the boy write the letter in the past, but he wrote it like before something happened in the past. So yesterday at tea time, the boy had, and I would add the word for clarity, already written the letter. So it was before yesterday at tea time. That's called pluperfect. It's like double perfect, double past. So says Rashi, and Rashi is teaching us a grammatical rule here. That normally in the past you have the verb followed by the subject. And just to confuse things further, it's not actually in a past tense, it's in a future tense, but the verb in front will make it, the verb conversive will make it into a past tense. But sometimes you have the subject followed by the verb, as we do here. Vaha'adam yada, subject followed by verb. And Rashi says that means it's pluperfect. So we read Pasuk Peridala, Pasuk Aleph as Vahadam Yadat Chava Ishto. Adam had already had relations with Chava, his wife, and she had given she had conceived and given birth. <coughs> and that is already before what we were talking about immediately above, which was the sin and the expulsion. So the fact that it says Vahadam Yada, it means it's pluperfect, it had already happened. Um, I refer you to Perit Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. So, Perek Kaf Aleph Pasuk Aleph. Actually, we should start with the end of Perek Kaf. So, Perek Kaf describes how <coughs> Abraham and Sarah go to uh, the area of the Plishtim in a time of famine, and they meet Avimelech. And Avimelech does what? Well, they, they try the same trick of saying Sarah is Abraham's sister to protect them both. It doesn't really well. It does work to some extent. Sarah is taken by Avimelech. And Hashem sends plagues, and then uh, Avimelech says, I'm really sorry. And in Pasuk uh, Kaf, Pasuk Yud Zayin, Abraham Elokim, Elokim et Avimelech. Avraham davened to Hashem, and Hashem healed Avimelech, He healed Avimelech and his wife and their servants, and they gave birth. Now, if you look in Perak, the next parak, Kaf Aleph Aleph, we write, we find, the Hashem Pakad et Sarah. Hashem remembered Sarah, Ka'asher Amar, as he had said, Vayas Hashem la Sarah Ka'asher Diber, and Hashem did for Sarah as he had said, the Tahar, and she conceived, the Tailed Sarah, and Sarah gave birth to Abraham, to Abraham, Ben Lizkunav, a child for his old age. So that, what that means is the long-awaited child was born to Avraham and Sarah, who was Yitzchak, etc. Now, Rashi says on the words for Hashem Pakadet Sarah, uh, it joins this parsha to the previous parsha about Avraham davening for Avimelech, to teach you, anyone who davens for mercy for his fellow, and the davener also needs that same Yeshua. Who He is answered first. So look, Abraham davens for Avimelech. 
Avimelech's family conceive. Then it says, Hashem remembered Sarah and she conceived. So how does this prove that Abraham is the example of somebody whose, whose prayer is answered for his own sake first before the person he's davening for is healed? Because it says here, the Hashem Pakad. What do you notice? It's the blue perfect. Why is it the blue perfect? Because it's the subject before the verb, as Rashi goes on to say. He healed her already before he healed Avimelech. So Rashi doesn't spell it out about the blue perfect, but it's the same use of the idea that subject followed by verb means it had already happened. You'll give you one more example, Perak Lamatet Pasuk Aleph. The story of Yosef. Now, the story of Yosef, Yosef is thrown in a pit, sold to Mitzrayim, and then it's interrupted by the whole story of Yehuda and Tamar, <coughs> which takes up a whole Perak. And then the story of Yosef is resumed in Perak Lamatet Pasuk Aleph, where it says, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. Yosef was brought down to Egypt. But again, what do you notice? Subject followed by verb, which means Yosef had already been brought down to Egypt before the whole Yehuda and Tamar story. Because the whole Yehuda and Tamar story is out of order because Yosef had already been brought down to Egypt and that is maintained, according to Rashi, by the use of subject followed by verb. Back to our Pasuk. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why it's so important. What's the big difference between saying uh, Adam had already had relations with Chava and Adam had relations with Chava here and now, after the expulsion. The difference is this. It's whether marital relations and conceiving and bearing children had a place in Gan Eden. Now, the Jewish view, as expressed here by Rashi, is yes. There is no contradiction to marital relations in, if you call it paradise, in the perfect world that was Gan Eden. If you translate it as the King James Bible does, and the Christians generally do, you are forced to say that there was Gan Eden, there was a sin, there was an expulsion, and then there was relations and conception and children. What does that tell you about sexual relations? They don't belong in Gan Eden. They are a concession to human frailty. And ideally, you don't get involved in that sort of thing. The nuns are celibate and the monks and the priests are celibate and sexuality is, is entirely uh, something that we have to uh, you know, accommodate because man is basically animalistic. But that's not the Jewish view. The Jewish view, as expressed here, just a little piece of grammar tells you that actually a fundamentally different view of sexual relations, that they actually belonged in Gan Eden. Okay, enough of that. Okay, that is the last reference to sexual relations for some time. Now, then Rashi says on the word Cain, al shem Kaniti. It's named after <coughs> the expression Kaniti. Because Chava goes on to say, Vatome Kaniti Ish et Hashem. I acquired a man, referring to her son, Cain, with Hashem. Well, when we get to her third son, we'll see that she uses a different turn of phrase, but we'll wait a while for that. Why does Rashi have to say this? Why does Rashi have to say the origin of the name Cain? which he doesn't generally. So the next child to be born is going to be called Hevel, and Rashi doesn't give an explanation for that. Why does Rashi say Kain is al shame Kaniti? Because the Pasuk says it. Because the Pasuk includes Chava, thank you very much, saying Vatoma Kaniti Ish et Hashem. So the Pasuk adds those extra words in, in the words of Chava. So Rashi says there must be a reason why the Pasuk gave us those words. I mean, Chava said a lot of things. She probably said a lot of things that day. Why does the Torah need to record that she says, Kaniti ish et Hashem? Answer, in order to explain why she called him Cain. So Cain comes from Kaniti. That's what Rashi has to say. So thank you very much for this, glass of, this cup of water. Um, anyone listening on the podcast should not say Amen to this bracha. Because you don't say Amen to a bracha that you hear on the recording. Baruch Adonai lehinu melech aram shakoni What's that? Okay. I'm just quickly on, on that. Yes. It seems a bit obvious. Why does Russia need to say that? Like, it, it seems obvious that uh, maybe because maybe we're used to how Torah goes, where um, we've got to try and I think look at all these things as if you didn't know. But often when it'll explain a name, 
or like especially with the, the Yaakov's children, like even named Reuven because this and Shimon because this is kind of like that's kind of it seems like the flow. Why does Rashi need to say Hashem Kaniti? It seems like Batomer Kaniti Yishet Et Hashem. Could we infer that anyway? Um, I think you you raise a good question with the children of Yaakov. Um, they're all born, and we're told the reason for their names, and it's because of what was said at the time of their birth. Couldn't we have inferred, inferred that anyway? Now, I have a feeling that in the case of the <coughs> children of Yaakov, it's a little bit more explicit. Um, yes, you see, for instance, Perak Kavtet, Posek Lamabet. V'tahar Leah, Leah conceived, V'tayled Ben, and she bore a son, V'tikra Shemo Ru'uven, and she called his name Ru'uven, Ki, Amra, because she said, Ki Hashem Ba'anyi, that Hashem has seen my affliction. Yeah. So there it says explicitly, she called him this because she said this. Yeah. And we don't have that. So, is pretty obvious. Well, it's, 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 maybe, maybe having known that, I'm saying, if, if I yeah. think, that's probably I've got to put that Okay, on. so I think the simple explanation for Rashi is it doesn't say yeah, she, she called him kind because she said, yeah. so Rashi spells that out. But you could actually say what the Maharal says, which is not so clear at all, because kind and kaniti is not really the same word. It's true, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. so kuf yud nun is not the same as kuf nun yud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Maharal takes a different view of what I just said, although I still think as a basis to what I said. It's not for me to disagree with the Maharal, but, you know. Um, he says Rashi needs to say that because otherwise, Dafka, you wouldn't have made the connection between Kaim and Kaniti. Okay? So you think, obviously, there's a connection. I think, obviously, there's a connection. Maharal says maybe you would have thought there isn't a connection because they're spelled differently. And then, Et Hashem. Now, I just gave a little drosha on the word Et before, how we don't need it because it's just there to point to the um, object now, in the next pasuk, you'll, say, you'll see Rashi certainly understands it as being much more than that. But look at here uh, what he says on Et Hashem. He says, Im Hashem, with Hashem. <coughs> and the reason he has to say that is because Et sometimes means with. Um, a very good example is the very first pasuk in Shemot, which you might have learned in school, you might just know. And it says, Eilu Shemot b'nei Yisrael ha'ba'im Mitzrayimah, Eight Yaakov Ish Uveto Ba'u. These are the names of the children of Israel who came to Mitzrayim. Et Yaakov means with Yaakov. So et sometimes means with. Not always, rarely, but sometimes it means with. So Rashi says here it means with Hashem. But Rashi needs to go further. What he says is, Keshabara Oti Ve'et Ishti, this is Chava talking, when he created me and my husband, who levado baranu? He alone created us. Aval bezer shutfim anu imo. But with this, we are partners with him. So he's explaining. Rashi is explaining what what Chava is trying to express. What does it mean? I created a person with Hashem. So it means that there's three partners. There's three partners in the creation of a person. And by the way, this is quite a, you know, a, a worthy thing. The Gemara says there's three partners in a creation, the father, the mother, and Hashem. Um, but I, I said I was going to tell you what she says when her third son is born. But I'll tell you now, if you look at Perak Dalad, Pasuk Kaf Hay. <coughs> so Kaf Hay, by the way, begins, Ve'yeda Adam. What do you notice? It's not the blue perfect, which might be, by the way, another reason for Rashi to make his comment here, because Vayeda Adam is not only what you'd usually expect, it's precisely what you do find in Perak Dala Pasa Cafe. So Rashi has to explain why it's different here. Anyway, Vayeda Adam od edishto v'teled ben v'tikra et shemo sheit ki shat li elokim zera acher tachat hevel. She called his name sheit, because Hashem has put for me or given me another child, another seed, instead of Hevel or in place of Hevel, Ki Harogo Kain, because Kain killed him. It's a very different mood, very different comment. When she gives birth to Kain, number, child number one, she says, I've made him with Hashem. When she gives birth to number three, after the disaster of Kain killing Hevel, she says, Hashem has given me. She doesn't claim such involvement. She's much more um, humble, if you like, in her understanding of the, of the process. But anyway, 
Rashi doesn't make that point explicitly, but I think it is implied that she's putting herself up on the level with Hashem, which is perhaps not such a good thing to do, and she learns from it, and we can see the next time she doesn't put herself up on the level with Hashem. But Rashi's explaining what it means, im et Hashem, and she's saying, Rashi's pointing out that she's contrasting, if you like, the second generation of humans with the first generation of the humans. The first generation of humans were created by Hashem alone. <coughs> the second generation were created by Adam and Chava with Hashem. Now, Rashi has more to say, but it actually goes into the next Pasuk. So let's read the next Pasuk, and then we'll go back to Rashi. And the next Pasuk says in Pasuk Bet, V'tosef laledet et achiv, and she continued to bear his brother et Hevel, Hevel. And then it says, Vayihi Hevel ro'et son. Hevel was a shepherd. The Cain haya oved adama. And Cain worked the ground. So Hevel was a sheep farmer and Cain was an agriculturalist. Now, but that's not what Rashi's talking about, first of all. Rashi links the words et Cain from Pasuk Aleph and et Achiv et Hevel from Pasuk Bet. <coughs> and it's interesting, we've said many times, but the Dibra Matchil, the words that the Chumash puts in block letters, which is Rashi's, uh, what the words that Rashi's commenting on, it's very significant that Rashi includes this word or doesn't include this word in his Dibra Matchil. What he's done here is taken two words from the middle of Perak Dalet and then four words from the middle of, sorry, Pasuk, Aleph, Peretala, Pasuk Aleph, and then four words from the middle of Pasuk Bet, and join them together in one line because he wants to comment on these words together. And he says, what are his words? Shalosha etin. Three times we see et, et kain, et achiv, et hevel, ribuyim heim. They are to include more. And what are they including? They teach us that a twin sister was born with Kain. So et Kain means she gave birth to Kain and something else. Now, by the way, Rashi um, made a similar point in Perak Aleph Pasuk Yudalad. If you turn to Perak Aleph Pasuk Yudalad, um, it's not actually on the Pasuk. It's in the Rashi. So if you look at Perik Dalad, sorry, Perik Dalad, Pasuk Yudalad, Rashi, <coughs> very quickly, I'll just go through it to get to the point. They were already created, the, the sun and moon were already created on the first day, on the, on the seventh, on, sorry, on the fourth day. He commanded that they be hung in the sky. And similarly, all the offspring of heaven and earth were created on the first day. And each day, each, uh, each thing was put in its place on the day that was decreed from it. Here, here comes the point. That's what's written in the very first passage. Says Rashi here. Means on the first day Hashem created Shemayim and all its offspring. Et ha'aretz means on the first day Hashem created the earth and all its offspring. So Rashi is of the principle that et, when it comes, when it can be seen as to include more things, includes more things. And what can, what can be included with Cain? A twin sister. And what's included with Hevel? So there's three etim. So we have to have three things <coughs> that are added. So if we go back to our Rashi, on Perik Dalad Pasuk Aleph Stroke Bet. So uh, we've got on the words, Et Kain, Et Achiv, Et Hevel. I'll just go back. Shalosha Etin, Rebuyim Heim. The three Etim are to include more things. Malamein, Shetu'umah, Nolda, Im Kain. To tell you that a twin sister was born with Kain. The Im Hevel, Noldu, Shtayim. And with Hevel were born two. Lekach Ne'emar, the Tosef. And that's why it says, the Tosef, she continued. So a few things to say. Um, we can read naturally, and we probably all did, the beginning of Pasuk Bet, the Tosef Leledet, she continued to bear. Sounds like she had a first son, Cain, and then she had another son. But Rashi says, no, the Tosef is more significant than that. 
And I think it's pretty obvious when you think about it that we could have managed without the word Vatosef if it just meant she had another son. If it just said Vatahar um, old or something, as we see in many other places, you talked about um, Leah and Rachel, Vatahar old, Vatahar old, she conceived again, she conceived again. So we could have said that with Chava. But it says Vatosef, which means she added. <coughs> so Rashi says it doesn't mean just she added another child. She added something more, because we don't need the word Vatosef to say she had another child. So that and the three etin implies that there was one extra child born with Cain and two extra children born with Hevel. Now, we've also answered another question, which Rashi doesn't address at all, but he's answered it. And we've alluded to another thing as well. What question might we have asked by explaining that there were twin sisters uh, in the story? So Hevel doesn't have any children. He dies. But Cain has children. <clears throat> and so you might wonder, Who did Cain have children with? whom did Cain have children with? Um, if we assume, <coughs> as Rashi, as Chazal clearly do, that these were the only people, then uh, there's, only one, there's only two possible solutions. Either Cain had children with Chava, um, which is what some want to say, or there were other daughters born, and this is where the other daughters were born. Now, obviously, Cain having relations with his mother or with his sister is um, problematic and it would be subsequently forbidden and uh, made a taboo in every society in the world. However, in that generation, when there was no choice, it was allowed. Gemara talks about Olam Chesed Yebane. That was the Chesed that was allowed in that generation to build the world. Anyway, so Rashi is telling you, although he doesn't address this directly, that when Cain has children, his wife is one of his sisters. It's also the case, now this is not Rashi, because Rashi doesn't bring this point at all. We're about to see that Cain and Hevel have an argument. And there is a Midrash that says they were arguing about the extra sister. So obviously Cain says his twin sister is his partner. Hevel says his first twin sister is his partner. How do they divide the spare between them? Yes, it is rather gendered, I'm afraid, this, this analysis. So that's one Midrashic interpretation of what they were fighting about. Rashi doesn't say that, but he understands that the three etin and the word the Tosef implies there was a second twin sister. <coughs> now, we move on to the occupations of Cain and Hevel. Uh, I'm sorry, yes. Do we assume that there was twin sisters? Why couldn't it have been twin sons? Do we assume if it was sons again to be gendered, that it would have been spec- that the name would have been specified? There were no sisters. Yes. Do we assume that had they been sons, then they would have been named? Yeah. Because the Torah is pretty silent about women. Yeah, um, possibly. Um, or, the, there's, if you like, there's a, need, a narrative need for sisters. True. Okay? Yes, there isn't a narrative need for sons. Mm-hmm. So we need to know there are sisters going to be around so that kind can have children. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah, I mean, we can discuss perhaps in another forum why the Torah is generally more silent about women unless they have a very significant role. <coughs> um, but you, but Jacob, uh, not Jacob, sorry. <laughs> There's too many Joneses, I get confused. But it was asked, um, how do we know they're sisters? So you're saying they could be sons, but they don't need to be named because they just ha- don't have to be, happen to be a tr- protagonist of the story. Um, however... Um, we don't know if there are lots of silent sons in the Torah. We do know there are quite a few silent daughters in the Torah. So it sort of fits that this is a silent daughter rather than a silent son. It just occurs to me that if they were sons, because Yichus is, throughout, certainly throughout Bereshit, defined by the father having children, then we might wonder if they were sons, did they have children, why aren't they listed? But daughters don't get listed as, as, as founders of dynasties. <coughs> so I don't know exactly why the Midrash that Rashi's quoting says they were daughters, they, but it does. Now, a very interesting comment on Pasuk Bet, um, on the words Roed Son, that Hevel was a Roed Son, he was a shepherd. Says Rashi, Lefi shenit kalala ha'adama, because the ground was cursed, piresh lo me'avodota, he separated himself from its working. 
So, Cain is a farmer, he grows things, but Hevel is something different. Hevel is a sheep farmer. And Rashi feels the need to explain why he becomes a sheep farmer. Now, why do we need to explain it? First of all, why do we need to explain it? Because... Um, ah, so, okay, that's an interesting point. You said there's no use being a shepherd. Why do you say there's no use being a shepherd? Because they don't kill animals for food. Okay, now, a sheep is interesting because you do get other things from a sheep. What else do you get from a sheep? You get wool and you get milk if you're so inclined. Um, but sheep are interesting because they have a produce which grows year to year. You don't have to kill it to get the produce. But essentially, um, you don't, if they didn't kill animals for meat, that does sort of reduce the need and the benefit of being a sheep farmer. So that's one point. Another point is, uh, most people carry on the profession of their father. Right? And what was their father's profession? He worked the land. So you might naturally expect their children to work the land. So Cain is continuing the tradition of his father and Hevel is doing something different. So there's two reasons why you might want to know why Hevel is a sheep farmer. One, because there's not much point in farming sheep because you can't eat them. And two, he's changing tack from the family tradition. Now, the next thing is, Rashi says, because the ground was cursed. Who cursed the ground? In what way was the ground cursed? Yeah, it's Adam's punishment. So when he sows nice stuff, what comes up? Thorns and thistles. Now, one more point. And this, I actually, did I read it in the Hamalevitz book or did I actually hear it from her herself? I think I actually might have heard it from her herself. <coughs> I was very lucky in my life to have two shirim from the Hamalevitz herself, which was quite an experience. Um, and I think I actually heard her say this, but I also saw it in one of her books, um, which is this. She suggested that there's a judgment here about Cain and Hevel. Now, notice that in a minute, there's going to be an argument between the two, and one's a bad guy. It's not actually clear who the, whether the other one's a good guy. No, actually, it is clear. Um, we're going to reach very, very soon. In the next verse, we're going to see that one of them is better than the other. Who's the good guy and who's the not such good guy? Hevel is the good guy, and Cain is the bad guy. So... Says Nechambalevitz, we can see in this Rashi a suggestion that Hevel is a good guy. Why is, why, what's, what's he doing here, according to Rashi, that makes him good? He's responding to the curse. So he gets the message. Hashem is saying, you've got to change tack. You've got to live, so, you've got to live a life differently to what Adam did, because Adam failed. And the, res- the result of Adam's failure is that the ground is cursed. Now look at Cain. What does Cain say to the cursed ground? What does Cain say as a result of the curse? Nothing. He just carries on as before. But Hevel reacts. He says, Hashem has changed the world. So I've got to make a difference. I've got to go on a new path. <coughs> According to Hanbalevitz, Rashi is saying, Hevel is to be praised because he is responding to Hashem's cursing by saying, I've got to do something new. Yes? Well, maybe. Isn't it a valid response to carry on doing the same but to try and rectify it? Yeah. Um, maybe, but um, I suppose to maintain the idea that I'm sharing with you, how are you going to rectify it by carrying on in the same way? That's the problem. Um, and we do find, you know, there's an old saying, if you do what you've always done, you get what you always got. Uh, it's a leadership and management little quote, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it's clear that kind doesn't change things. On the contrary, it gets worse under kind. I mean, we're out to get to the second disaster in humanity. Humanity's only going a few days and we're up to disaster number two. Um, there is a change and the curse is somehow lifted, but we have to wait for whom? For Noah. And Noah, in Noah's time, the curse is, is somehow um, alleviated. So my answer to you is, yes, you raise a good question. Maybe, he, <coughs> maybe we can say he should carry on and make it better, but he doesn't. So I think that's a support for the view that Hevel is doing something good. Now, Pasuk Gimel. Vayhi miketz yamim. 
And it was at the end of days. Interesting phrase, but Rashi doesn't find it interesting, so we'll go on. And Cain brought from the fruit of the ground an offering for Hashem. Says Rashi, From the inferior. And we'll come on, we'll see what he says next in a moment. Why does Rashi say it's from the inferior? Is there anything that implies inferiority about what we just read in Pasuk Gimel? Things from the land. Things from the land, interesting. But where else would he get fruit from? Tree. Oh, I see, from the trees. So he brought vegetables rather than fruits. Does that make a difference when you're giving them as a sacrifice? Possibly. Land is, is, you know, is lowly stuff, but where else would they have come from? Any other thoughts? Okay, um, I did see a suggestion. It's mipriha adama rather than mipriotav. He just buy, it sounds like fruit that's just lying around rather than the fruit that he's lovingly tendered. So that's one suggestion. But a better suggestion, and I think the obvious one, is we have to read Pasuk Gimel in contrast to Pasuk Dalad. So Pasuk Dalad says, The hevel hevi gamhu. Hevel also brought mibachorot sono. From the firstborn of his flock, and from the fatty ones. And then it says, and which Rashi will explain as Hashem turned to Hevel and to his offering. And in Pasuk Hey, it says, Hashem did not turn to Kain and to his offering. So, there's two drivers, if you like, that we get from Pasuk Dalad that leads us back to Pasuk Gimel. The second one, which I don't think actually is the key, is we want to understand divine justice. We want to understand if Hashem accepts one korban and doesn't accept the other, there must be a reason for that. So Rashi's giving us the reason. But I don't think that's the main thing, because I think there's a much clearer textual point here. Okay, who's ever been in the experience where their parent says of you and your sibling... You have done well in school, but your sibling has done fantastically in school. Ever been in that situation? No, because your parents are all wonderful and they would never, ever do that. But what would it mean if theoretical parents did that? What would it mean if theoretical parents said, child A did some work in school and child B did some beautiful, wonderful work in school? What would that mean about child A's work? It was inferior. It was inferior. And that's what we have in Pasuk Gimel and Pasuk Dalet. So Kain brings Priha Adama, Stam. And Hevel brings Mibachorot Sono, Umechel Vehen. So the second answer, I still think is relevant, but I don't think it's the key, that we understand divine justice. Once we understand why that Hashem turned to Hevel's offering and not to Kain's offering, Rashi has to explain because Kain's offering was Min Hagarua. It was inferior. But Better than that is the Pasuk goes out of its way in Pasuk Dalad to praise Hevel's offering, but it says nothing about Kain's offering, from which we learn it was Min Hagarua. Now Rashi carries on in Pasuk Gimel, and he says, <coughs> There is an agada, there is a Midrash, that says it was the flax seed. What's the significance of flax? Well, Flax, apparently, is the most inedible type of human food. It's on the, very much on the border between human food and animal food. It's like the worst type of human food you can get is flax. <coughs> the Mizrahi says something which I think is... I was going to say cute, which is what I normally say about something that's like a nice sort of gematria type thing but is not significant. And I shouldn't say that about the words of the Mizrahi, so I won't say cute, but it's... Well, I'll tell you what he says. He says, Pishtan, if you look at the word korban, which, by the way, doesn't appear in the Pasuk. It's called a mincha, an offering, but this offering is a type of korban. If you spell out the letters of korban, kuf, reish, pei, um, nun, sorry, bet, nun, kuf, reish, bet, nun, and you look at the last letter of the letter, in other words, kuf, what's the last letter of kuf? Pei. What's the last letter of reish? Last letter of vet? Tough. And the last letter of Nun? Nun, which spells out? Pishtan. Okay. So that's what the Mizrahi says. And it's also... Okay. 
Um, it's also, there's a, I think it's a Zohar. I don't know if it's a Midrash per se. I think it's a Zohar that says, and this is interesting, this will blow your mind, that Cain um, bought Pishtun, flax, from which we make linen. And Hevel, what do you think he brought from his sheep? Wool. So there was wool and linen, and it didn't go together. Yeah, interesting. Okay, but Rashi doesn't say that. Okay, now, in my book, we have some more words in brackets. Anyone have some words in brackets in Rashi? Yeah. So it appears in some texts and not others. Mipri me'eza shabaliado lotov velo muvchar. Fruit, just whatever happened to come to his hand. Not good and not choice, not, not uh, specially chosen. So when it came to Hevel, he chose Mibukhorat Sono. <coughs> but Mipri means just stum. He didn't go out of his way. It was just stum pri. So that is found in some versions of Rashi and not in others. Now, it's interesting, he says Tavar Acher, which implies there's a contrast between the first Peshat and the second Peshat. Uh, and perhaps one of the reasons this, this piece of Rashi is doubtful, whether it's like um, canon, is because it's not really clear that this is a different Peshat. Rashi's, if you call it first Peshat, he said Min HaGerua, and second Peshat means Mipri Me'eza Shabali Ado, Lo Tov I suppose maybe you could say first Peshat says it's Tafka Inferior, Second Peshat says it's neutral, not good, but not necessarily inferior. Either way, it's not as good as Hevel's. But even inferior, it doesn't need to be inferior to the best. If something could be second quality if you want it's still inferior, it could do that as well, I guess. Yes, I suppose there's no such thing as neutral, um, you, because it's all fruit. Right, yeah, so, you've got the choices, you got, and if you want, Hevel's, and if something's inferior, it could be, say, if you have first grade, and it could be a second grade. Right, or it could be third grade. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. So I, I think that, that I, I didn't study this, but there must be a reason why some girsaot, some texts of Rashi don't have that davar acher. And I think it, it, it's it's no coincidence, but it's a little bit hard to explain why it is a davar acher. Um, now it's nine twenty seven, and the next Rashi. It's only one word. Well, it starts with one word, Rashi, but it's going to take us uh, to further explanation. So I think we will close there. And in Yitzhak Hashem, in two weeks' time, we'll carry on from Pasuk Dalad. Thank you very much.